Chapter 8. Through the Looking Glass A man that looks on glass, on it may stay his eye. Or if he pleaseth, through it pass, and then the heaven he spy. George Herbert, The Elixir Objects to be perceived must first penetrate in some manner our brain, but we are not because of this interlocked with our environment. Although normal consciousness is focused on the senses and is usually restricted to them, it is possible for man to pass through his sense fixation into any imaginal structure which he conceives and so fully occupies it that it is more alive and more responsive than that on which his senses stay his eye. If it were not true, man would be an automaton reflecting life, never affecting it. Man, who is all imagination, is not tenant to the brain, but landlord. He need not rest content with the appearance of things. He can go beyond perceptual to conceptual awareness. This ability to pass through the mechanical reflective structure of the senses is the most important discovery man can make. It reveals man as a center of imagining with powers of intervention which enable him to alter the course of observed events moving from success to success through a series of mental transformations in himself. Attention, the spearhead of imagining, may be either attracted from without as his senses stay his eye or directed from within, if he pleases, and through the senses pass into the wish fulfilled. To move from perceptual awareness or things as they seem to conceptual awareness or things as they ought to be, we imagine as vivid and as lifelike a representation as possible of what we would see, hear, and do were we physically present and physically experiencing things as they ought to be and imaginatively participate in that scene. The following story tells us of one who went through the glass and broke the chains that bound her. Two years ago, I was taken to the hospital with a serious blood clot condition, which apparently had affected the entire vascular system, causing hardening of arteries and arthritis. A nerve in my head was damaged, and my thyroid enlarged. Doctors could not agree on the cause of this condition, and all their treatments were completely ineffective. I was forced to give up my every enjoyable activity and remain in bed most of the time. My body, from hips to toes, felt as though it was encased and bound by tight wires, and I couldn't put my feet on the floor without wearing heavy hip-length elastic stockings. I knew something of your teaching and tried very hard to apply what I had heard, but as my condition grew worse and I could no longer attend any of your lectures, my despondency grew deeper. One day, a friend sent me a postcard picturing the scene of a lovely beach by the ocean. The picture was so beautiful, I looked and looked at it and began to remember past summer days at the seashore with my parents. For a moment, the postcard picture seemed to become animated and flooding memories of myself running free on the beach filled my mind. I felt the impact of my bare feet against the hard, wet sand. I felt the icy water running over my toes and heard the crash of waves breaking on shore. This imaginal activity was so satisfying to me as I lay in bed that I continued to imagine this wonderful scene day after day for about one week. 
One morning, I moved from my bed to a couch and had started to sit up. When I was seized with such an excruciating pain, my entire body became paralyzed. I could neither sit up nor lie down. This terrible pain lasted for more than a full minute. But when it stopped, I was free. It seemed as if all the wires binding my legs had been cut. One moment I was bound, the next moment I was free. Not by degrees, but instantly. V.H. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. When we walk by sight, we know our way by objects which our eyes see. When we walk by faith, we order our life by scenes and actions which only imagination sees. Man perceives by the eye of imagination or by sense. But two mental attitudes to perception are possible. The creative imaginative effort which meets with an imaginative response or the unimaginative staying of the eye which merely reflects. Man has within him the principle of life and the principle of death. One is the imagination building its imaginal structures out of the generous dreams of fancy. The other is the imagination building its imaginal structures from images reflected by the chill wind of fact. One creates, the other perpetuates. Man must adopt either the way of faith or the way of sight. To the extent that man builds from dreams of fancy, he is alive, and therefore the development of the faculty to pass through the reflective glass of the senses is an increase of life. It follows that restricting the imagination by staying the eye on the reflective glass of the senses is a reduction of life. The specious surface of fact reflects rather than discloses deflecting the eye of imagination from the truth that sets man free. John 8, 32 The eye of imagination, if not deflected, looks on what ought to be there, not what is. However familiar the scene on which sight rests, the eye of imagination could gaze on one never before witnessed. It is this eye of imagination, and only this, that can free us from the sense fixation of outer things which completely dominates our ordinary existence and keeps us looking on the reflective glass of facts. It is possible to pass from thinking of to thinking from, but the crucial matter is thinking from, i.e., experiencing the state, for that experience means unification. Whereas in thinking of, there is always subject and object, the thinking individual and the thing thought of. Self-abandonment, that is the secret. We have to abandon ourselves to the state, in our love for the state, and in so doing, live the life of the state and no more our present state. Imagination seizes upon the life of the state and gives itself to the expression of the life of that state. Faith plus love is self-commission. We cannot commit ourselves to what we do not love. Never would you have made anything if you had not loved it. For you love all the things that are and despise nothing which you have made. For never would you have made anything if you hated it. Book of Wisdom 1124.
and to make the state alive, one must become it. I live, yet not I. God lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, 20 God loved man, his created, and became man in faith that this act of self-commission would transform the created into the creative. We must be imitators of God as dear children. Ephesians 5, 1, and commit ourselves to what we love as God who loved us committed himself to us. We must be the state to experience the state. The center of conscious imagining can be shifted and what are now mere wishes, imaginal activities keyed low, brought into penetrative focus and entered. Entrance commits us to the state. The possibilities of such shifting of the center of imagining are startling. The activities concerned are psychical throughout. The shifting of the center of imagining is not brought about by spatial travel, but by a change in what we are aware of. The boundary of the world of sense is a subjective barrier. So long as the senses take notice, the eye of imagination is deflected from the truth. We do not get far unless we let go. This lady let go with immediate and miraculous results. Thank you for the golden key. It has released my brother from the hospital, from pain and probable death, for he was facing a fourth major operation with little hope of recovery. I was very concerned and attempting to use what I had learned about my imagination. I first asked myself, what my brother truly desired. Does he want to continue in this body or does he desire to be free of it? The question revolved itself over and over in my mind and suddenly I felt that he would like to continue remodeling his kitchen which he had been contemplating before his confinement in the hospital. I knew my question had been answered. So I began to imagine from that point. Attempting to see my brother in the busy activity of remodeling, I suddenly found myself gripping the back of a kitchen chair I had used many times when something happened. Then suddenly I found myself standing beside my brother's bed in the hospital. This was the last place I would have wanted to be, physically or mentally. But there I was, and my brother's hand reached up and clasped my right hand tightly as I heard him say, I knew you would come, Joe. It was a well hand I clasped, strong and sure, and the joy that filled and spilled over in my voice as I heard myself say, It's all better now. You know it. My brother didn't answer, but I distinctly heard a voice say to me, Remember this moment. I seemed to awake then, back in my own home. This took place the night after he had entered the hospital. The following day, his wife telephoned me saying, It is unbelievable. The doctor can't account for it, Joe, but no operation is necessary. He's so improved that they have agreed to release him tomorrow. 
The following Monday, my brother went back to his work and has been perfectly well since that day. J.S. Not facts, but dreams of fancy shape our lives. She needed no compass to find her brother, nor tools to operate, only the eye of imagination. In the world of sense, we see what we have to see. In the world of imagination, we see what we want to see. And seeing it, we create it for the world of sense to see. We see the outer world automatically. Seeing what we want to see demands voluntary and conscious imaginative effort. Our future is our own imaginal activity in its creative march. Common sense assures us that we are living in a solid and sensible world, but this so seemingly solid world is, in reality, imaginal through and through. The following story proves that it is possible for an individual to transfer the center of imagining to some greater or lesser degree to a distant area and not only do so without moving physically, but to be visible to others who are present at that point in space-time. And if this be a dream, then... Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? Edgar Allan Poe Seated in my living room in San Francisco, I imagined I was in my daughter's living room in London, England. I surrounded myself so completely with that room which I knew intimately that I suddenly found myself actually standing in it. My daughter was standing by her fireplace, her face turned away from me. A moment later, she turned and our eyes met. I saw such a startled, frightened expression on her face that I, too, became emotionally upset and immediately found myself back in my own living room in San Francisco. Five days later, I received an airmail letter from my daughter, which had been written on the day of my experiment with imaginal travel. In her letter, she told me she had seen me in her living room that day just as real as though I were actually standing there in the flesh. She confessed she had been very frightened and that before she could speak I had vanished. The time of this visitation as she gave it in her letter was exactly the time I had begun the imaginative action allowing, of course, for the difference in time between the two points. She explained that she told her husband of this amazing experience, and he insisted that she write to me immediately, as he stated, Your mother must have died, or is dying. But I wasn't dead or dying, but very much alive and very excited by this marvelous experience. M.L.J. The senses join man in forest and unholy wedlock to what, were he imaginatively awake, he would put asunder. We need not feed on sense data. Shift the focus of awareness and see what happens. However little we move mentally, we should perceive the world under a slightly changed aspect. Awareness is usually moved about in space by movement of the physical organism, but it need not be so restricted. It can be moved by a change in what we are aware of. Man is manifesting the power of imagination whose limits he cannot define. To realize that the real self, imagination, is not something enclosed within the spatial boundary of the body is most important. The foregoing story proves that when we meet a person in the flesh, that his real self need not be present in space where his body is. It also shows that 
sense perception can be thrown into operation outside of the normal physical means, and that the sense data produced is of the same kind as those which occur in normal perception. The idea in the mother's mind, which started the whole process going, was the very definite idea of being in the place where her daughter lived. And if the mother really were in that place, and if the daughter were present, then she would have to be perceptible to her daughter. We can only hope to understand this experience in imaginal and not in mechanical or materialistic terms. The mother imagined elsewhere as being here. London was just as here to her daughter living there as San Francisco was here to the mother living there. It hardly ever crosses our minds that this world might be different in essence from what common sense tells us it so obviously is. Blake writes, I question not my corporeal or vegetative eye any more than I would question a window concerning a sight. I look through it and not with it. This looking through the eye not only shifts consciousness to other parts of this world, but to other worlds as well. Astronomers must wish they knew more of this, looking through the eye, this mental traveling that mystics practice so easily. I traveled through a land of men, a land of men and women too, and heard and saw such dreadful things as cold earth wanderers never knew. William Blake, The Mental Traveler Mental traveling has been practiced by awakened men and women since the earliest days. Paul states, I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. 2 Corinthians 12 Paul is telling us, that he is that man and that he traveled by the power of imagination or Christ. In this next letter to the Corinthians, he writes, Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 We need not be dead in order to enjoy spiritual privileges. Man is all imagination and God is man. William Blake, from Annotations to Berkeley Test yourselves, as this mother did. Sir Arthur Eddington said that all we have a right to say of the external world is that it is a shared experience. Things are more or less real according to the extent to which they are capable of being shared with others or with ourselves at another time. But there is no hard and fast line. Accepting Eddington's definition of reality as shared experience, the above story is as real as the earth or a color for it was shared by both mother and daughter. The range of imagining is such that I must confess that I do not know what limits, if any, there are to its ability to create reality. All these stories show us one thing that an imaginal activity implying the wish fulfilled must start in the imagination apart from the evidence of the senses in that journey that leads to the realization of desire. Chapter 9. Enter Into If the spectator would enter into these images in his imagination, approaching them on the fiery chariot of his contemplative thought, 
if he could make a friend and companion of one of these images of wonder, which always entreats him to leave. Mortal things, as he must know. Then would he arise from his grave, then would he meet the Lord in the air, and then he would be happy. Blake Imagination, it seems, will do nothing that we wish until we enter into the image of the wish fulfilled. Does not this entering into the image of the wish fulfilled resemble Blake's void outside of existence, which, if entered into, englobes itself and becomes a womb? Is this not the true interpretation of the mystical story of Adam and Eve? Man and his emanation. Are not man's dreams of fancy his emanation, his Eve in whom he plants himself in all her nerves, just as a husbandman, his mold, and she becomes his dwelling place and garden fruitful seventyfold? William Blake, The Mental Traveler The secret of creation is the secret of imagining. First, desiring and then assuming the feeling of the wish fulfilled until the dream of fancy, the void outside existence, is entered and englobes itself and becomes a womb, a dwelling place and garden fruitful seventyfold. Note well that Blake urges us to enter into these images. This entering into the image makes it englobe itself and become a womb. Man, by entering a state, impregnates it and causes it to create what the union implies. Blake tells us that these images are shadowy to those who dwell not in them, mere possibilities, but to those who enter into them they seem the only substances. On my way to the West Coast, I stopped in Chicago to spend the day with friends. My host was recovering from a severe illness, and his doctor advised him to move to a one-story house. Acting upon the doctor's advice, he had purchased a one-story house suited to his needs. But he now was confronted with the fact that there seemed to be no buyer for his large three-story home. When I arrived, he was very discouraged. In trying to explain the law of constructive imagining to my host and his wife, I told him the story of a very prominent New York woman who had come to see me concerning the rental of her apartment. She maintained a lovely city apartment and a country home, but it was absolutely essential that she rent her apartment if she and her family were to spend the summer at their country home. Neville Goddard, The Power of Awareness, Chapter 23, Case Histories, 5. In previous years, the apartment had been rented without any difficulty early in the spring. But at the time she came to see me, the season for summer sublets was seemingly over. Although the apartment had been in the hands of good real estate agents, no one had seemed interested in renting it. I told her what to do in her imagination. She did it, and in less than 24 hours, her apartment was rented. I explained how she, by the constructive use of her imagination, had rented her apartment. At my suggestion before she went to sleep that night in her apartment in the city, she imagined she was lying in her bed in her country home. In her imagination, she viewed the world from the country house rather than from the city apartment. She smelled the fresh country air. She made this so real that she actually drifted off to sleep feeling that she was in the country. That was on a Thursday night. 
At nine o'clock the following Saturday morning, she phoned me from her country home and told me that on Friday, a highly desirable tenant who met all of her requirements not only rented her apartment, but rented it on the one condition that he could move in that very day. I suggested to my friends that they build an imaginal structure as this woman had done, and that was to sleep imagining they were physically present in their new home, feeling they had sold their old home. I explained to them the wide differences between thinking of the image of their new house and thinking from the image of their new house. Thinking of it is a confession they are not in it. Thinking from it is proof that they are in it. Entering into the image would give substance to the image. Their physical occupancy of the new house would follow automatically. I explain that what the world looks like depends entirely on where man is when he makes his observation. And man, being all imagination, must be where he is in imagination. This concept of causation disturbed them, for it smacked of magic or superstition. But they promised they would try it. I left that night for California, and the following evening the conductor on the train in which I was traveling handed me a telegram. It read, House sold midnight last. One week later, they wrote and told me that the very night I left Chicago, they fell asleep physically in the old house, but mentally in the new, viewing the world from the new home, imagining how things would sound if this were true. They were awakened that very night from their sleep to be told the house was sold. Not until the image is entered, until Eve is known, does the event burst upon the world. The wish fulfilled must be conceived in the imagination of man before the event can evolve out of what Blake calls the void. This next story proves that by shifting the focus of her imagining, Mrs. M.F. entered physically into where she had persisted in being imaginatively. Soon after our marriage, my husband and I decided that our greatest joint desire was a year in Europe. This objective may seem reasonable to a lot of people, but to us, tied to a narrow sphere of limited finances, it seemed not only unreasonable, but completely ridiculous. Europe might as well have been another planet. But I had heard your teaching. So I persisted in falling asleep in England. Why England, necessarily? I cannot tell except that I had seen a current motion picture featuring the area around Buckingham Palace and had promptly fallen in love with the scene. All I did in my imagination was to stand quietly outside the great iron gates and feel the cold metal bars gripped tightly in my hands as I viewed the palace. For many, many nights I felt an intense joy at being there and fell asleep in this happy state. Soon after, my husband met a stranger at a party, who within one month was instrumental in securing a teaching fellowship for him at a great university. Imagine my excitement when I heard the university was in England, tied to a narrow sphere. Within another month, we were crossing the Atlantic, and our supposedly insurmountable difficulties melted as though they never existed. 
we had our year in Europe. One of the happiest years of my life. M.F. What the world looks like depends entirely on where man is when he makes his observations. And man, being all imagination, must be where he is in imagination. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, 22. That stone is imagining. I acquaint you with this secret and leave you to act or react. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold. For that which God doth touch and own cannot for less be told. George Herbert, The Elixir My home is old, but it is mine. I wanted the exterior painted and the interior redecorated, yet I had no money to accomplish either objective. You told us to live as though our desire is already a reality, and this I began to do imagining my old house with a brand new coat of paint, new furnishings, new decoration, and all the trimmings. I walked in my imagination through the newly decorated rooms. I walked around the outside admiring the fresh paint, and at the end of my imaginal act, I handed the contractor a check for payment in full. I entered this imaginal scene faithfully as often as I could during the day and each night before I fell asleep. Within two weeks, I received the registered letter from Lloyd's of London, telling me I had inherited $7,000 from a woman I had never met. I had known her brother, slightly almost 40 years before, and had performed a small service 15 years ago for the lady when this brother had died in our country and she had written to me asking for particulars regarding his death which I was able to provide. I had not heard from her since that time. Now here was the check for $7,000, more than enough to cover the cost of my house restoration, plus many, many other things I desired. E.C.A. He who does not imagine in stronger and better liniments, and in stronger and better light than his perishing and mortal eye can see, does not imagine at all. Blake Unless the individual imagines himself someone else or somewhere else, the present conditions and circumstances of his life will continue in being and his problems recur, for all events renew themselves from his constant images. By him they were made, by him they continue in being, and by him they can cease to be. The secret of causation is in the assembled imagery, but a word of warning. The assemblage must have meaning. It must imply something or it will not form the creative activity. The Word Chapter 10 Things which do not appear What is seen was made out of things which do not appear. Hebrews 11.3 Human history with its forms of governments, its revolutions, its wars, and in fact the rise and fall of nations, could be written in terms of the rise and fall of ideas implanted in the minds of men. Herbert Hoover 
The secret of imagining is the greatest of all problems to the solution of which the mystic aspires. Supreme power, supreme wisdom, supreme delight lie in the far-off solution of this mystery. Douglas Fawcett To refuse to recognize the creative power of man's invisible imaginal activity is too great to be argued with. Man, through his imaginal activity, literally calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans 4.17 By man's imaginal activity, all things are made, and without such activity was not anything made that was made. John 1.3 Such causal activity could be defined as an imaginal assemblage of images which occurring some physical event invariably takes place. It is for us to assemble the images of happy outcome and then keep from interfering. The event must not be forced but allowed to happen. If imagination is the only thing that acts or is in existing beings of men, as Blake believed, then we should never be certain that it was not some woman treading in the winepress who began that subtle change in men's minds. William Butler Yeats This grandmother is daily treading the winepress for her little granddaughter. She writes, This is one of those things that make my family and friends say, We just don't understand it. Kim is two and a half years old now. I took care of her for a month after she was born and did not see her again until a year ago, and then only for two weeks. However, during this past year, every day I have taken her on my lap, in my imagination, and cuddled her and talked to her. In these imaginal acts, I go over all the wonderful things about Kim. God is growing through me. God is loving through me, etc. At first... I would get the response of a very young child. When I started, God is growing through me, she would reply, Me? Now, as I start, she completes the whole sentence. Another thing that has happened is, as the months have passed, as I take her in my imagination, on my lap, she has grown constantly larger and heavier. Kim hasn't even seen a picture of me in the past year. At the most, I could only be a name to her. Now, sometime each day, her family tells me she starts talking about me. To no one in particular, just talking. Sometimes it goes on for an hour, or she goes to the phone and pretends to call. In her monologue are such bits as, My Didi loves me. My Didi always comes to see me every day. Even though I know what I have been doing in my imagination, it has caused me, too, to wonder much. UK all imaginative men and women are forever casting forth enchantments, and all passive men and women who have no powerful imaginative lives are continually passing under the spell of their power. There is no form in nature which is not produced by and sustained by some imaginal activity. Therefore, any change in the imaginal activity must result in a corresponding change in form. To imagine a substitute image for unwanted or defective content is to create it. If only we persist in our ideal imaginal activity and do not let lesser satisfactions suffice, 
ours shall be the victory. Then I read in Seed Time and Harvest, the story of the schoolteacher who, through her imagination, in daily revision, transformed a delinquent pupil into a lovely girl. I decided to do something about a young boy in my husband's school. To tell all the problems involved would take pages, for my husband has never had such a difficult child nor such a trying parent situation. The lad was too young to be expelled, yet the teachers refused to have him in their classes. To make matters worse, the mother and grandmother literally camped on the school grounds making trouble for everyone. I wanted to help the boy, but I also wanted to help my husband. So, nightly, I constructed two scenes in my imagination. One, I saw a perfectly normal happy child. Two, I heard my husband say, I can't believe it, dear, but do you know R is acting like a normal boy now, and it is heaven not having those two women around. After two months of persisting in my imaginal play, night after night, my husband came home and said, It's like heaven around school. Not exactly the same words, but close enough for me. The grandmother had become involved in something that took her out of town, and the mother had to accompany her. At the same time, a new teacher had welcomed the challenge of R, and he was progressing wonderfully, well into all I imagined for him. G.B. It is useless to hold standards that we do not apply. Unlike Portia, who said, I can easier teach twenty what were good to be done than be one of the twenty to follow mine own teaching. William Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice G.B. followed her own teaching. It is fatally easy to make the acceptance of the imaginal faith a substitute for living by it. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61, 1 Chapter 11 The Potter Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Jeremiah 18, 2 through 4 the word translated potter means imagination. Out of material others would have thrown away as useless, an awakened imagination refashions it as it ought to be. O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art our potter. We are all the work of thy hand. Isaiah 64, 8 This conception of creation as a work of imagination and the Lord our Father as our imagination, will take us further into the mystery of creation than any other guide. The only reason people do not believe in this identity of God and human imagination is that they are unwilling to assume the responsibility for their fruitful misuse of imagination. Divine imagination has descended to the level of human imagination, that human imagination may ascend to divine imagination. The eighth psalm says that man was made a little lower than God, 
not a little lower than the angels, as the King James Version mistakenly translates it. Angels are the emotional dispositions of man and are therefore his servant and not his superior, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 1, 14. Imagination is the real man and is one with God. Imagination creates, conserves, and transforms. Imagination is radically creative when all imaginative activity based on memory disappears. Imagination is conservative when its imaginal activity is fed with images supplied mainly by memory. Imagination is transformative when it varies a theme already in being, when it mentally alters a fact of life, when it leaves the fact out of the remembered experience or puts something in its place if it upsets the harmony it desires. Through the use of her imagination, this talented young artist has made her dream a reality. Ever since I entered into the art field, I have enjoyed doing sketches and paintings for children's rooms. However, I have been discouraged by advisors and friends who were far more experienced in the field than I. They liked my work, admired my talent, but said I would not get recognition nor pay for this type of work. Somehow I always felt I would. But how? Then last fall I heard your lectures and read your books, and I decided to let my imagination create the reality I desired. This is what I did daily. I imagined I was in a gallery. There was a great deal of excitement about me. On the walls hung my art. Only mine, a one-woman show, and I saw red stars on many of the pictures. This would indicate that they had been sold. This is what happened just before Christmas. I did a mobile for a friend who showed it in turn to a friend of hers who owns an art import store in Pasadena. He expressed a desire to meet me, so I took a few samples of my work along. When he looked at the very first painting, he said he would like to give me a one-woman show in the spring. The night of the opening, April 17, an interior decorator came and liked and commissioned me to do a collage for a little boy's room, which will appear in the September issue of Good Housekeeping for the 1961 House of the Year. Later, during the showing, another decorator came and admired my work so much, he asked if he might arrange for me to meet the right interior decorators and the right owners of galleries who would buy and display my work properly. Incidentally, the show was a financial success for the owner of the gallery as well as for me. The interesting thing about this is that seemingly these three men came to me out of the blue. Well, certainly I made no effort during the time of my imagining to contact anyone, but now I am getting recognition and have a market for my work. And now I know without a shadow of a doubt that there is no no when you seriously apply the principle that imagining creates reality. G.L. She tested the potter and proved his creativity in performance. Only the indolent mind would fail to rise to this challenge. Paul states, The Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Romans 8, 9. 8, 
11. James 4, 5. Now, examine yourselves to see whether you are holding to your faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. If all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, John 1, 3, it should not be difficult for man to test himself to find out who this creator in himself is. The test will prove to man that his imagination is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans 4.17 The potter's presence in us is inferred from what he does there. We cannot see him there as one, not ourselves. The nature of the potter, Jesus Christ, is to create, and there is no creation without him. Every recorded story in this book is just such a test as Paul asked the Corinthians to make. God really and truly exists in man, in every human being. God wholly becomes us. He is not our virtue, but our real selves, our imagination. The following illustrations from the mineral world may help us to see how supreme imagining and human imagining could be one and the same power and yet be vastly different in their creativity. Diamond is the world's hardest mineral. Graphite, used in lead pencils, is one of the softest. Yet both minerals are pure carbon. The vast difference in the properties of the two forms of carbon is believed to be caused by a different arrangement of the carbon atoms. But whether the difference is produced by a different arrangement of the carbon atoms or not, all agree that diamond and graphite are one substance. Pure carbon. The purpose of life is the creative realization of desire. Man lacking desire could not exist efficiently in a world of continuous problems requiring continuing solutions. A desire is an awareness of something we lack or need to make life more enjoyable. Desires always have some personal gain in view. The greater the anticipated gain, the more intense the desire. There is no really unselfish desire. Even when our desire is for another, we are still seeking to gratify desire. To attain our desire, we should imagine scenes implying their fulfillment and enact the scene in our imagination, if only momentarily with a joy sufficiently felt within its limits to make it natural. It is like a child dressing up and playing queen. We must imagine we are what we would like to be. We must play it in imagination first, not as a spectator, as an actor. This lady imaginatively played queen by being where she wanted to be in her imagination. She was the true actor in this theater. My desire was to attend a matinee performance of a famous pantomimist currently playing in one of the largest theaters of our city. Because of the intimate nature of this art, I wanted to sit in the orchestra, but I didn't have even the price of a balcony ticket. 
the night I determined to have this pleasure for myself in my imagination. I fell asleep watching the wondrous performer. In my imaginal act, I sat in an orchestra center seat, heard the applause as the curtain rose and the artist came on stage, and I actually felt the intense excitement of this experience. The next day, the day of the matinee performance, my financial condition had not changed. I had exactly $1.37 in my purse. I knew I must use the dollar to buy gas for my car, which would leave me with 37 cents. But I also knew I had faithfully slept in the feeling of being at that performance, so I dressed myself for the theater. While changing articles from one purse to another, I found a dollar bill and 45 cents in change hidden in the pocket of my seldom-used opera purse. I grinned to myself, realizing that gasoline money had been given to me. So would the balance of my theater ticket be given to me? Gaily, I finished dressing and left for the theater. Standing before the ticket window, my confidence dwindled as I gazed at the prices and saw three seventy-five for orchestra seats. With a feeling of dismay, I turned away quickly and walked across the street to a cafe for a cup of tea. I had spent 16 cents on my tea before I remembered seeing the price of balcony seats on the ticket window list. Hurriedly, I counted my change and found I had $1.66 left. Running back to the theater, I bought the cheapest seat available, which cost $1.55. With one dime left in my purse... I went through the entrance and the usher tore my ticket in half, saying, Upstairs, left, please. The performance was about to begin. But ignoring the usher's instructions, I walked into the main floor's ladies' restroom, still determined to sit in the orchestra section. I sat down, closed my eyes and kept my inward sight riveted on the stage from the direction of the orchestra. At that moment, a group of women walked into the restroom, all talking at once. But I heard only one conversation, as a woman speaking to her companion said, But I waited and waited until the last moment. Then she called and said she couldn't make it. I would have given her ticket away, but it's too late now. Not realizing it, I handed the usher both tickets, and he tore them in half before I could stop him. I almost laughed aloud. Getting up, I walked over to this lady and asked if I might use the extra ticket she had instead of the balcony seat I had bought. She was charming and kindly invited me to join her party. The ticket she handed me was for the orchestra section center seat, six rows from the stage. I sat in that seat only moments before the curtain rose on a performance I had witnessed the night before from that seat in my imagination. J.R. We must actually be in imagination. It is one thing to think of the end and another thing to think from the end. To think from the end, to enact the end, is to create reality. The inner actions must correspond to the actions we would physically perform after these things should be. Edward Thomas, The New House 
To live wisely, we must be aware of our imaginal activity and see to it that it is faithfully shaping the end we desire. The world is clay. Our imagination is the potter. We should always imagine ends that are of value or promise well. He who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. William Blake What's done flows from what's imagined. Outward forms reveal the imaginings of man. Man is the shuttle to whose winding quest and passage through these looms God ordered motion, but ordained no rest. Henry Vaughan I run a small business, solely owned, and a few years ago it seemed that my venture would end in failure. For some months, sales had fallen steadily, and I found myself in a financial jam, along with thousands of other small businessmen, as this period spanned one of our country's minor recessions. I was badly in debt and needed at least $3,000 almost immediately. My auditors advised me to close my doors and try to salvage what I could. Instead, I turned to my imagination. I knew your teaching, but had never actually attempted to solve any problem in this manner. I was frankly skeptical of the entire idea that imagination can create reality, but I was also desperate, and desperation forced me to test your teaching. I imagined my office receiving $4,000 unexpectedly in remittances due. This money would have to come from new orders, as my accounts receivable were practically non-existent. But this seemed far-fetched, as I hadn't received this much in sales during the last four months or more. Nevertheless, I kept my imaginal picture of receiving this amount of money steadily before me for three days. Early the fourth morning, a customer I had not heard from in months called me on the telephone asking me to come and see him personally. I was to bring a quotation previously given him for machinery needed by his factory. The quotation was months old, but I dug it out of my files and lost no time in arriving at his office that day. I wrote out the order, which he signed, but I saw no immediate help for me in the transaction as the equipment he wanted would take from four to six months for factory delivery, and of course, my customer did not have to pay for it until delivered. I thanked him for the order and rose to leave. He stopped me at the door and handed me a check for a little over $4,000, saying, I want to pay for the merchandise now, in advance, for tax purposes, you know. You don't mind? No, I didn't mind. I realized what had happened the moment I took that check into my hands. Within three days, my imaginal act had done for me what I hadn't been able to do in months of desperate financial shuffling. I know now that imagination could have brought $40,000 into my business just as easily as $4,000. L.N.C. O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay, and Thou art our potter. We are all the work of Thy hand. Isaiah 64, 8 Chapter 12 Attitudes. 
mental things are alone real, what is called corporeal. Nobody knows of its dwelling place. It is in fallacy and its existence an imposture. Where is the existence out of mind or thought? Where is it but in the mind of a fool? Blake. Memory, though faulty, is adequate to the call for sameness. If we remember another as we have known him, we recreate him in that image, and the past will be recognized in the present. Imagining creates reality. If there is room for improvement, we should reconstruct him with new content. Visualize him as we would like him to be, rather than have him bear the burden of our memory of him. Everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. Blake The following story is by one who believes that imagining creates reality, and acting on this belief changed his attitude toward a stranger and bore witness to this change in reality. More than twenty years ago, when I was a green farm boy, newly arrived in Boston to attend school, a panhandler asked me for money for a meal. Although the money I had was pitifully insufficient for my own needs, I gave him what was in my pocket. A few hours later, the same man, by this time staggering drunk, stopped me again and asked for money. I was so outraged to think the money I could so ill afford had been put to such use. I made myself a solemn pledge that I would never again listen to the plea of a street beggar. Through the years I kept my pledge, but every time I refused anyone, my conscience needled me. I felt guilty even to the point of developing a sharp pain in my stomach, but I couldn't bring myself to unbend. The early part of this year, a man stopped me as I was walking my dog and asked for money so he could eat. True to the old pledge, I refused him. His manner was gracious as he accepted my refusal. He even admired my dog and spoke of a family in New York State he knew that raised Cocker Spaniels. This time my conscience was really pricking me. As he went on his way, I determined to remake that scene as I wished it had been. So I stopped right there on the street, closed my eyes for only a few moments, and enacted the scene differently. In my imagination, I had the same man approach me, only this time he opened the conversation by admiring my dog. After we had talked a moment, I had him say, I don't like to ask you this, but I really need something to eat. I have a job that begins tomorrow morning, but I've been out of work, and tonight I'm hungry. I then reached into my imaginary pocket, pulled out an imaginary $5 bill, and gladly gave it to him. This imaginal act immediately dissolved the guilty feeling and the pain. I know from your teaching that an imaginal act is fact, so I knew I could grant anyone what he asked, and by faith in the imaginal act, consent to the reality of his having it. Four months later, as I was again walking my dog, the same man approached me and opened the conversation by admiring my dog. Here's a beautiful dog, he said. 
"'Young man, I don't suppose you remember me, "'but a while back I asked you for some money, "'and you very kindly said no. "'I say kindly because if you had given it to me, "'I would still be asking for money. "'Instead, I got a job that very next morning, "'and now I'm on my feet and have some self-respect again.' I knew his job was a fact when I imagined it that night some four months before. But I won't deny there was immense satisfaction in having him appear in the flesh to confirm it. F.B. I have no silver and gold, but I give you what I have. Acts 3, 6. None is to be discarded. All must be saved. And our imagination reshaping memory is the process whereby this salvation is brought to pass. To condemn the man for having lost his way is to punish the already punished. Oh, whom should I pity if I pity not the sinner who has gone astray? William Blake, Jerusalem. Not what the man was, but what he may become should be our imaginal activity. Don't you remember Sweet Alice? Ben Bolt. Sweet Alice whose hair was so brown, who wept with delight when you gave her a smile and trembled with fear at your frown? George de Maurier. If we imagine no worse of him than he of himself, he would pass as excellent. It's not the man at his best, but the imaginist exercising the spirit of forgiveness that performs the miracle. Imagining with new content transformed both the man who asked and the man who gave. Imagining has not yet had its due in the systems either of moralists or educators. When it does, there will be the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61, 1. Nothing has existence for us save through the memory we have of it. Therefore, we should remember it not as it was, unless, of course, it was altogether desirable, but as we desire it to be. Inasmuch as imagining is creative, our memory of another either furthers or hinders him and makes his upward or downward way easier and swifter. There is no coal of character so dead that it will not glow and flame if but slightly turned. The following story shows that imagining can make rings and husbands and move people to China. My husband, child of a broken home and raised by beloved grandparents, was never close to his mother, nor she to him. A woman of 63 and a divorce for 32 of those years, she was lonely and embittered, and my relationship with her was strained as I attempted to stay in the middle. By her own admission, her great desire was to remarry for companionship, but she believed this to be impossible at her age. My husband would often state to me that he hoped she would remarry, and as he fervently put it, perhaps live way out of town. I had the same wish, and as I put it, perhaps move to China? Being wary of my personal motive for this wish, I knew I must change my feeling toward her in my imaginal drama and at the same time give her what she wanted. 
I began by seeing her in my imagination as a completely changed personality. A happy, joyous woman, secure and contented in a new relationship. Every time I thought of her, I would see her mentally as a new woman. About three weeks later, she came to our house for a visit, bringing a friend she had met many months previously. The man had recently become a widower. He was her age, secure financially, and had grown children and grandchildren. We liked him, and I was excited because it was obvious they liked each other, but my husband still thought it was impossible. I didn't. From that day on, Every time her image rose in my mind, I saw her extending her left hand toward me, and I admired the ring on her finger. One month later, she and her friend came to visit us, and as I walked forward to greet them, she proudly extended her left hand. The ring was on her finger. Two weeks later, she was married, and we haven't seen her since. She lives in a brand new home way out of town, and as her new husband dislikes the long drive to our house, she might as well have moved to China. J.B. There is a wide difference between the will to resist an activity and the decision to change it. He who changes an activity acts, whereas he who resists an activity reacts. One creates, the other perpetuates. Nothing is real beyond the imaginative patterns we make of it. Memory, no less than desire, resembles a daydream. Why make it a daymare? Man can forgive only if he treats memory as a daydream and shapes it to his heart's desire. R.K. learned that we may rob others of their abilities by our attitudes toward them. He changed his attitude and thereby changed a fact. I am not a moneylender, nor am I in the investment business as such. But a friend and business acquaintance came to me for a substantial loan in order to expand his plant. Because of personal friendship, I granted the loan with reasonable interest rates and gave my friend the right of renewal at the end of one year. When the first year term expired... He was behind in his interest payments and requested a 30-day extension on the note. I granted this request, but at the end of 30 days, he was still unable to meet the note and asked for an additional extension. As I previously stated, I am not in the business of lending money. Within 20 days, I needed full payment of the loan to meet debts of my own. But I consented again to extend the note, although my own credit was now in serious jeopardy. The natural thing to do was to apply legal pressure to collect, and a few years ago, I would have done just that. Instead, I remembered your warning not to rob others of their ability, and I realized that I had been robbing my friend of his ability to pay what he owed. For three nights, I constructed a scene in my imagination in which I heard my friend tell me that unexpected orders had flooded his desk so rapidly he was now able to pay the loan in full. The fourth day I received the telephone call from him. He told me that by what he called a miracle, he had received so many orders and big ones too, he was now able to pay back my loan including all interest due and in fact 
had just mailed a check to me for the entire amount. R.K. There is nothing more fundamental to the secret of imagining than the distinction between imagining and the state imagined. Mental things are alone real. Everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. William Blake Chapter 13 All Trivia General knowledge is remote knowledge. It is in particulars that wisdom consists, and happiness too. Blake We must use our imagination to achieve particular ends, even if the ends are all trivia. Because men do not clearly define and imagine particular ends, the results are uncertain, while they might be perfectly certain. To imagine particular ends is to discriminate clearly. How do we distinguish the oak from the beech, the horse from the ox, but by the bounding outline? William Blake, Human Form Divine Definition asserts the reality of the particular thing against the formless generalizations which flood the mind. Life on earth is a kindergarten for image-making. The bigness or littleness of the object to be created is not in itself important. The great and golden rule of art, as well as of life, said Blake, is this, that the more distinct Sharp and wiry the bounding line, the more perfect the work of art, and the less keen and sharp, the greater is the evidence of weak imitation. What is it that builds a house and plants a garden, but the definite and determinate? Leave out this line and you leave out life itself. The following stories are concerned with the acquiring of seemingly little things, or toys as I call them, but they are important because of the clear imaginal images that created the toys. The author of the first story is one of whom it is said she has everything. And this is true. She has financial, social, and intellectual security. She writes, As you know through your teaching and through my practice of that teaching, I have completely changed myself and my life. Two weeks ago when you spoke of toys, I realized I had never used my imagination for the getting of things, and I decided it would be fun to try it. You told of a young woman who was given a hat by merely wearing that hat in her imagination. The last thing on earth I needed was a hat, but I wanted to test my imagination for this getting of things, so I selected a hat pictured in a fashion magazine. I cut the picture out and stuck it on the mirror of my dressing table. I studied the picture carefully. Then I shut my eyes, and in my imagination, I put that hat on my head and wore it. As I walked out of the house, I did this just once. The following week, I met some friends for luncheon, and one of them was wearing the hat. We all admired it. The very next day, I received the parcel by special delivery messenger. The hat was in the parcel. The friend who had worn it the day before had sent the hat to me with a note saying she did not particularly care for the hat and didn't know why she had bought it in the first place. But for some reason she thought it would look well on me and would I please accept it. G.L. 
Movement from dreams to things is the power driving humanity. We must live wholly on the level of imagination, and it must be consciously and deliberately undertaken. All my life I have loved birds. I enjoy watching them, hearing their chatter, feeding them, and I am particularly fond of the small sparrow. For many months, I have fed them crumbs of morning bread, wild bird seed, and anything I believe they would eat. And for all those months, I have been frustrated as I watch the larger birds, particularly the pigeons, command the area, gobbling up most of the good seed and leaving the husks for my sparrows. To use my imagination on this problem seemed facetious to me at first, but the more I thought of it, the more interesting the idea became. So, one night, I set about seeing the little birds come in for their full share of daily offerings, and I would tell my wife that the pigeons no longer interfered with my sparrows, but took their share like gentlemen and then left the area. I continued this imaginary action for almost one month. Then one morning, I noticed that the pigeons had disappeared. The sparrows had breakfast all to themselves for a few days. For those few days, no larger bird entered the area. They did return eventually, but to this day they have never again infringed on the area occupied by my sparrows. They stay together, eating what I put out for them, leaving a full share of the area to my tiny friends. And do you know, I actually believe the sparrows understand. They no longer seem to be afraid when I walk among them. R.K. This lady proves that unless our heart is in the task, unless we imagine ourselves right into the feeling of our wish fulfilled, we are not there, for we are all imagination and must be where and what we are in imagination. In early February, my husband and I had been in our new house one month, a home lovely beyond telling, perched on a rugged cliff, with the ocean for our front yard, wind and sky for neighbors and seagulls for guests. We were ecstatic. If you have experienced the joy and woe of building your own home, you know how completely filled with happiness you are and how completely empty your purse is. A hundred lovely things clamored to be bought for that house. But the one thing we wanted most of all was the most useless, a picture. Not just any picture, but a wild, wonderful scene of the sea dominated by a great white clipper ship. This picture had been in our thoughts all the months of building, and we left one living room wall free of paneling to hold it. My husband mounted decorative red and green ship lanterns on the wall to frame our picture. But the picture itself would have to wait. Draperies, carpeting, all the practical items must come first. Perhaps so, but that didn't stop either one of us from seeing that picture in our imagination on that wall. One day while shopping, I strolled into a small art gallery, and as I walked to the door, I stopped so suddenly, a gentleman walking behind me crashed into an easel. I apologized and pointed to a painting hanging at head height across the room. That's what I did. I've never seen anything so wonderful. He introduced himself as the owner of the gallery and said, Yes, an original by the greatest English painter of clipper ships the world has known. 
he went on to tell me about the artist. But I wasn't listening. I could not take my eyes from that wonderful ship. And suddenly, I experienced a very strange thing. It was only a moment in time, but the art gallery faded, and I saw that picture on my wall. I'm afraid the owner thought me a little giddy, and I was. But I finally managed to return my attention to his voice when he mentioned an astronomical price. I smiled and said, Perhaps someday. He continued to tell me about the painter and also about an American artist who was the only living lithographer capable of copying the great English master. He said, if you're very lucky, you may pick up one of his prints. I've seen his work. It's perfect down to the last detail. Many people prefer prints to paintings. Prints or paintings? I knew nothing about the value of either. And anyway, all I wanted was that scene. When my husband returned home that evening, I talked of nothing but that painting and pleaded with him to visit the gallery and see it. Maybe we could find a print of it somewhere, the man said. Yes, he interrupted, but you know we can't afford any picture now. Our conversation ended there. But that night after dinner, I stood in our living room and saw that picture on our wall. The next day, my husband had an appointment with a client which he did not want to keep. But the appointment was kept, and my husband did not return home until after dark. When he walked through the front door, I was busy in another part of the house and called a greeting to him. A few minutes later, I heard hammering and walked into the living room to see what he was doing. On our wall hung my picture. In my first moment of intense joy, I remembered the man in the art gallery saying, If you're very lucky, you may pick up one of his prints. Lucky? Well, here is my husband's part of the story. Making the call already mentioned, he entered one of the poorest, meanest little houses he had ever been in. The client introduced himself and led my husband into a tiny dark dining area, where the two of them sat down at a bare table. As my husband put his briefcase on the tabletop, he looked up and saw the picture on a wall. He confessed to me he had conducted a very sloppy interview because he couldn't take his eyes from that picture. The client signed the contract and gave a check as down payment, which, as my husband believed at the time, was $10 short. Mentioning this fact to the client... He said the check given was every cent he could afford, but added, I've noticed your interest in that picture. It was here when I took this place. I don't know to whom it belonged, but I don't want it. If you'll put the $10 in for me, I'll give you the picture. When my husband returned to his company's main office, he learned he had been in error about the amount. He was not charged $10. Our picture is on our wall. And it cost us nothing. A.A. Of R.L., who writes the following letter, it must be said, In faith, lady, you have a merry heart. William Shakespeare. Much ado about nothing. One day during a bus strike, I needed to go into the downtown area and had to walk ten blocks from my home to the nearest bus in operation. 
Before starting home, I recall there was no food market on this new route, and I wouldn't be able to shop for dinner. I had enough to manage a potluck meal, but I would need bread. After shopping all day, the ten blocks back from the bus line was all I could manage, and to go still further to shop for bread was out of the question. I stood very still for a moment and allowed a vision of bread to dance in my head. Then I started for home. When I boarded the bus, I was so tired I grabbed the first available seat and almost sat on a paper bag. Now, on a crowded bus, tired passengers rarely look directly at one another. So being naturally curious, I peeked into the bag. Of course, it was a loaf of bread. Not just any bread, but the very same brand of bread I always buy. R.L. Trifles. All trifles. But they produce their trivia without price. Imagining accomplished these things without the means generally reputed necessary to do so. Man rates wealth in a way that bears no relation to real values. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55, 1 Chapter 14 The Creative Moment The natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 There is a moment in each day that Satan cannot find, nor can his watch fiends find it. But the industrious find this moment, and it multiply, and when it once is found, it renovates every moment of the day if rightly placed. Blake Whenever we imagine things as they ought to be, rather than as they seem to be, is the moment. For in that moment, the spiritual man's work is done, and all the great events of time start forth to mold a world in harmony with that moment's altered pattern. Satan, Blake writes, is a reactor. He never acts, he only reacts. And if our attitude to the happenings of the day is reactionary, are we not playing Satan's part? Hmm. Man is only reacting in his natural or Satan state. He never acts or creates. He only reacts or recreates. One real creative moment, one real feeling of the wish fulfilled is worth more than the whole natural life of reaction. In such a moment, God's work is done. Once more we may say with Blake, God only acts and is in existing beings or men. The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, 1793 There is an imaginal past and an imaginal future. If by reacting the past is recreated into the present, so by acting out our dreams of fancy can the future be brought into the present. I feel now the future in the instant. William Shakespeare, Macbeth. The spiritual man acts. For him, anything that he wants to do, he can do at once in his imagination. And his motto is always, the moment is now. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. 
nothing stands between man and the fulfillment of his dream but facts. And facts are the creations of imagining. If man changes his imagining, he will change the facts. This story tells of a young woman who found the moment and by acting out her dream of fancy, brought the future into the instant, not realizing what she had done until the final scene. The incident related below must appear to be coincidence to those never exposed to your teaching. But I know I observed an imaginative act take solid form in perhaps four minutes. I believe you will be interested in reading this account, written down exactly as it happened a few minutes after the actual occurrence yesterday morning. I was driving my car east on Sunset Boulevard in the center lane of traffic, braking slowly to stop for a red signal at a three-way intersection. Then my attention was caught by the sight of an elderly lady, dressed all in gray, running across the street in front of my car. Her arm was raised, signaling to the driver of a bus which was beginning to pull away from the curb. She was obviously attempting to cross in front of the bus to delay it. The driver slowed his vehicle and I thought would allow her to enter. Instead, as she jumped onto the curb, the bus pulled away, leaving her standing just in the act of lowering her arm. She turned and walked swiftly toward a nearby phone booth. As my signal changed to green and I put my car in motion, I wished I had been behind the bus and had been able to offer her a ride. Her extreme agitation was obvious even from the distance I was away from her. My wish instantly fulfilled itself in a mental drama, and as I drove away, the fancy played itself out in the following scene. I opened the car door, and a lady dressed in grey stepped in, smilingly, relieved and thanking me profusely. She was out of breath from running and said, I only have a few blocks to go. I'm meeting friends, and I was so afraid they would leave without me that I miss my bus. I left my imaginary lady out a few blocks further on, and she was delighted to observe her friends still waiting for her. She thanked me again and walked away. The entire mental scene was spanned in the time it takes to drive one block at a normal rate of speed. The fancy satisfied my feelings regarding the real incident, and I immediately forgot it. Four blocks further, I was still in the center lane and again had to stop for a red signal. My attention at this time was turned inward on something I have now forgotten, when suddenly someone tapped on the closed window of my car, and I looked up to see a lovely-appearing elderly lady with gray hair, dressed all in gray. Smiling, she asked if she might ride a few blocks with me, as she had missed her bus. She was out of breath, as though from running and I was so stunned by her sudden appearance in the middle of a busy street at my window that for a moment I could only react physically, and without answering, leaned over and opened my car door. She got in and said, It's so annoying to rush so and then miss a bus. I wouldn't have imposed on you like this, but I'm supposed to meet some friends a few blocks down the street, and if I had to walk now, I would miss them. Six blocks further on, she exclaimed, Oh, good. They're still waiting for me. I let her out and she thanked me again and walked away. 
I'm afraid I drove to my own destination by automatic reflex, for I had fully recognized that I had just observed the waking dream take form in physical action. I recognized what was happening while it was happening. As soon as I could, I wrote down each part of the incident and found a startling consistency between the waking dream and the subsequent reality. Both women were elderly, gracious in manner, dressed all in gray and out of breath from hurrying to catch a bus and missing it. Both wished to meet friends who for some reason could not wait for them much longer, and both left my car within the space of a few blocks after successfully completing their contact with their friends. I am amazed, confounded, and elated. If there is no such thing as coincidence or accident, then I witnessed imagination become reality almost instantaneously. J.R.B. There's a moment in each day that Satan cannot find, nor can his watch fiends find it. But the industrious find this moment, and it multiply, and when it once is found, it renovates every moment of the day, if rightly placed. From the first time I read your search... I have longed to experience a vision. Since you have told us of the promise, this desire has been intensified. I want to tell you of my vision, which was a glorious answer to my prayer, but I am sure I would not have had this experience were it not for something that occurred two weeks ago. It was necessary for me to park my car some distance from the university building where I was scheduled to conduct my class. As I left my car, I was conscious of the stillness about me. The street was completely deserted. No one was in sight. Suddenly, I heard a most frightful cursing voice. I looked toward the sound and saw a man brandishing a cane, yelling between vile words, I'll kill you! I'll kill you! I continued on as he approached me. For at that moment I thought, Now I can test what I have professed to believe, if I do believe we are one. The father, this derelict and I, no harm can come to me. At that moment, I had no fear. Instead of seeing a man coming toward me, I felt a light. He stopped yelling, dropped his cane, and walked quietly as we passed with less than a foot between us. Having tested my faith at that moment, everything about me had seemed more alive than before. Flowers brighter and trees greener. I have had a sense of peace and the oneness of life I had not known before. Last Friday, I drove to our country home. Nothing was unusual about the day or evening. I worked on a manuscript and, not being tired, did not try to fall off the sleep until around two the following morning. Then I turned off the light and drifted into that floating sensation. Not asleep, but drowsy, as I call it, half awake and half asleep. Often while in this state, lovely unknown faces float before me, but this morning the experience was different. A perfect face of a child came before me in profile. Then it turned and smiled at me. It was glowing with light and seemed to fill my own head with light. I was aglow and excited and thought this must be the Christos. But something within me, without sound, said, No, this is you. I feel I will never be the same again, and someday I may experience the promise. G.B.
Our dreams will all be realized from the time that we know that imagining creates reality and act. But imagination seeks from us something much deeper and more fundamental than creating things. Nothing less indeed than the recognition of its own oneness with God. That what it does is in reality. God himself doing it in and through man who is all imagination. Chapter 15 The Promise Four Mystical Experiences In all I have related thus far, with the exception of G.B.'s vision of the child, imagination was consciously exercised. Men and women created stage plays in their imagination, plays implying the fulfillment of their desires. Then, by imagining themselves participating in these dramas, they created that which their imaginal acts implied. This is the wise use of God's law, but no man is justified before God by the law. Galatians 3.11 Many people are interested in imagination as a way of life, but are not at all interested in its framework of faith, a faith leading to the fulfillment of God's promise. I will raise up your son after you, who shall come forth from your body. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14 The promise that God will bring forth from our body a son who will be born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 13 does not concern them. They want to know God's law, not his promise. However, this miraculous birth has been stated clearly as a must for all mankind from the earliest days of the Christian fellowship. You must be born from above. John 3, 7. My purpose here is to state it again and to state it in such language and with such reference to my own personal mystical experiences that the reader will see that this birth from above is far more than a part of a dispensable superstructure, that it is the sole purpose for God's creation. Specifically, my purpose in recording these four mystical experiences is to show that Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, Revelations 1.5, was trying to say about this birth from above. How can men preach unless they are sent? Romans 10.15 Many years ago, I was taken in spirit into a divine society a society of men in whom God is awake. Though it may seem strange, the gods do truly meet. As I entered this society, the first to greet me was the embodiment of infinite might. He was a power unknown to mortals. I was then taken to meet infinite love. He asked me, What is the greatest thing in the world? I answered him in the words of Paul, Faith, Hope and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen. At that moment he embraced me and our bodies fused and became one body. I was knit to him and loved him as my own soul. The words, love of God, so often a mere phrase, were now a reality with a tremendous meaning. 
Nothing ever imagined by man could be compared with this love which man feels through his union with love. The most intimate relationship on earth is like living in separate cells compared with this union. While I was in this state of supreme delight, a voice from outer space shouted, Down with the blue bloods! At this blast I found myself standing before the one who had first greeted me, he who embodied infinite might. He looked into my eyes, and without the use of words or mouth, I heard what he told me. Time to act. I was suddenly whisked out of that divine society and returned to earth. I was tormented by my limitations of understanding, but I knew that on that day the divine society had chosen me as a companion and sent me to preach Christ, God's promise to man. My mystical experiences have brought me to accept literally the saying that all the world's a stage, and to believe that God plays all the parts. The purpose of the play? To transform man, the created, into God, the creator. God loved man, his created, and became man in faith that this act of self-commission would transform man, the created, into God, the creator. The play begins with the crucifixion of God on man, as man, and ends with the resurrection of man as God. God becomes as we are, that we may be as he is. God becomes man, that man may become, first a living being, and secondly, a life-giving spirit. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, 20 God took upon himself the form of man and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross of man and is crucified on Golgotha, the skull of man. God himself enters death's door, the human skull, and lies down in the grave of man to make man a living being. God's mercy turned death into sleep. Then began the prodigious and unthinkable metamorphosis of man, the transformation of man into God. No man unaided by the crucifixion of God could cross the threshold that admits to conscious life, but now we have union with God in his crucified self. He lives in us as our wonderful human imagination. Man is all imagination, and God is man, and exists in us and we in him. The eternal body of man is the imagination, that is God himself, Blake. When he rises in us, we will be like him, and he will be like us. Then all impossibilities will dissolve in us at that touch of exaltation which his rising in us will impart to our nature. Here is the secret of the world. God died to give man life and to set man free. For however clearly God is aware of his creation, it does not follow that man imaginatively created is aware of God. To work this miracle, God had to die, then rise again as man, 
and none has ever expressed it so clearly as William Blake. Blake says, or rather, has Jesus say, Unless I die, thou canst not live. But if I die, I shall rise again, and thou with me. Wouldst thou love me, one who never died for thee, or ever die for one who had not died for thee? And if God dieth not for man, and giveth not himself eternally for man, man could not exist. So God dies. That is to say, God has freely given himself for man. Deliberately he has become man, and has forgotten that he is God, in the hope that man, thus created, will eventually rise as God. God has so completely offered his own self for man, that he cries out on the cross of man, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. Psalm 21, 1. He has completely forgotten that he is God. But after God rises in one man, that man will say to his brothers, Why stand we here trembling around, calling on God for help, and not ourselves in whom God dwells? Blake. This first man that has been raised from the dead is known as Jesus Christ. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep the firstborn of the dead. For man God died. Now by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ resurrects his dead father by becoming his father. In Adam, the universal man, God sleeps. In Jesus Christ, the individualized God, God wakes. In waking, Man the created has become God the creator and can truly say before the world was, I am. Adon Olam, Jewish Dogmatics Just as God in his love for man so completely identified himself with man that he forgot that he was God, so man in his love for God must so completely identify himself with God that he lives the life of God, that is, imaginatively. God's play, which transforms man into God, is revealed to us in the Bible. It is completely consistent in imagery and symbolism. The New Testament is hid in the Old Testament, and the Old is manifested in the New. The Bible is a vision of God's law and His promise. It was never intended to teach history, but rather to lead man in faith through the furnaces of affliction to the fulfillment of God's promise to rouse man from this profound sleep and awaken him as God. Its characters live not in the past, but in an imaginative eternity. They are personifications of the eternal spiritual states of the soul. They mark man's journey through eternal death and his awakening to eternal life. The Old Testament tells us of God's promise. The New Testament tells us not how this promise was fulfilled, but how it is fulfilled. The central theme of the Bible is the direct individual mystical experience of the birth of the child, that child of whom the prophet spoke. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah 9, 6-7 When the child is revealed to us, we see it, we experience it, and the response to this revelation can be stated in the words of Job. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Job 42, 5 The story of the Incarnation is not fable, allegory, or some carefully contrived fiction to enslave the minds of men, but mystical fact. It is a personal mystical experience of the birth of oneself out of one's own skull, symbolized in the birth of a child wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying on the floor. There is a distinction between hearing of this birth of a child from one's own skull, a birth which no scientist or historian could ever possibly explain, and actually experiencing the birth, holding in your own hands and seeing with your own eyes this miraculous child, a child born from above out of your own skull, a birth contrary to all the laws of nature. The question, as it is posed in the Old Testament, Ask now and see, can a male bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands delivering himself like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Jeremiah 30, 6 The Hebrew word shalats, mistranslated loins, means to draw out, to deliver, to withdraw self. The drawing of oneself out of one's own skull was exactly what the prophet foresaw as the necessary birth from above, a birth giving man entrance into the kingdom of God and the reflective perception on the highest levels of being. Throughout the ages, deep calls to deep. Psalm 42, 7. Rouse thyself. Why sleepest thou, O Lord, awake? Psalm 44, 23. The event as it is recorded in the Gospels actually takes place in man. But of that day or that hour when the time will come for the individual to be delivered, no one knows but the Father. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3, 7 through 8 This revelation in the Gospel of John is true. Here is my experience of this birth from above. Like Paul, I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. It came through the actual mystical experience of being born from above. None can speak truly of this mystical birth from above but one who has experienced it. I had no idea that this birth from above was literally true. Who before the experience could believe that the child, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, was inwoven in his own skull? Who before the experience would understand that his maker is his husband and the Lord of hosts is his name? Isaiah 54, 5. Who would believe that the Creator went in unto his own creation, man, and knew it to be himself, and that this entrance into the skull of man, this union of God and man, 
resulted in the birth of a son out of the skull of man, which birth gave to that man eternal life and union with his creator forever. If I now tell you what I experienced that night, I do so not to impose my ideas on others, but that I may give hope to those who, like Nicodemus, wonder how can a man be born when he is old. John 3, 4. How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? How can this be? This is how it happened to me. Therefore, I will now write the vision and make it plain upon tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. In the early hours of the morning on July 20th, 1959, in the city of San Francisco, a heavenly dream in which the arts flourished was suddenly interrupted by the most intense vibration centered at the base of my skull. Then a drama, as real as those I experience when I am fully awake, began to unfold. I awoke from a dream to find myself completely entombed within my skull. I tried to force my way out through its base. Something gave way, and I felt myself move head downward through the base of my skull. I squeezed myself out inch by inch. When I was almost out, I held what I took to be the foot of the bed and pulled the remaining portion of me out of my skull. There on the floor, I lay for a few seconds. Then I rose and looked at my body on the bed. It was pale of face, lying on its back and tossing from side to side like one in recovery from a great ordeal. As I contemplated it, hoping that it would not fall off the bed, I became aware that the vibration which started the whole drama was not only in my head, but now was also coming from the corner of the room. As I looked over to that corner, I wondered if that vibration could be caused by a very high wind, a wind strong enough to vibrate the window. I did not realize that the vibration which I still felt within my head was related to that which seemed to be coming from the corner of the room. Looking back to the bed, I discovered that my body was gone. But in its place sat my three older brothers. My oldest brother sat where the head was. My second and third brothers sat where the feet were. None seemed to be aware of me, although I was aware of them and could discern their thoughts. I suddenly became aware of the reality of my own invisibility. I noticed that they too were disturbed by the vibration coming from the corner of the room. My third brother was the most disturbed and went over to investigate the cause of the disturbance. His attention was attracted by something on the floor and looking down he announced, It's Neville's baby. My other two brothers, in most incredulous voices, asked, How can Neville have a baby? My brother lifted the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid him on the bed. I then, with my invisible hands, lifted the babe and asked him, How is my sweetheart? He looked into my eyes and smiled 
and I awoke in this world to ponder this greatest of my many mystical experiences. Tennyson has a description of death as a warrior, a skeleton high on a night black horse, issuing forth at midnight. But when Garrett's sword cut through the skull, there was in it the bright face of a blooming boy, fresh as a flower newborn, idols of the king. Two other visions I will tell, because they bear out the truth of my assertion that the Bible is mystical fact, that everything written about the promised child in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be mystically experienced in the imagination of the individual. The child's birth is a sign and a portent signaling the resurrection of David, the Lord's anointed, of whom he said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, 7. Five months after the birth of the child on the morning of December 6, 1959, in the city of Los Angeles, a vibration similar to the one which preceded his birth started in my head. This time its intensity was centered at the top of my head. Then came a sudden explosion, and I found myself in a modestly furnished room. There, leaning against the side of an open door, was my son David of biblical fame. He was a lad in his early teens. What struck me forcibly about him was the unusual beauty of his face and figure. He was, as he is described in the first book of Samuel, ruddy with beautiful eyes and very handsome. Samuel 16, 12, 17, 42. Not for one moment did I feel myself to be anyone other than who I am now. Yet, I knew that this lad David was my son, and he knew that I was his father, for the wisdom from above is without uncertainty. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. James 3.17 As I sat there contemplating the beauty of my son, the vision faded and I awoke. I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah 8.18 God gave me David as my very own son. I will raise up your son after you, who shall come forth from your body. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 2 Samuel 7, 12-14 God is known in no other way than through the Son. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Luke 10, 22. The experience of being David's father is the end of man's pilgrimage on earth. The purpose of life is to find the father of David, the Lord's anointed, the Christ. Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire whose son the stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, 
I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. 1 Samuel 17, 55-58 Jesse is any form of the verb, to be. In other words, I am the son of who I am. I am self-begotten. I am the son of God, the Father. I and my Father are one. John 10, 30 I am the image of the invisible God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9 Whose son? is not about David, but about David's father, whom the king had promised. 1 Samuel 17, 25 To make free in Israel. Note, in all these passages, 1 Samuel 17, 55, 56, 58. The king's inquiry is not about David, but about David's father. I have found David my servant. He shall cry to me. Thou art my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, 20, 26, 27. The individual who was born from above will find David and know him to be his very own son. Then he will ask the Pharisees, who were always with us, What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And when they say to him, The son of David, he will say to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? Matthew 22, 41-45 Man's misconception of the role of the son, which is only a sign and a portent, has made the son an idol. Little children keep yourselves from idols. 1 John five twenty one. God awakes, and that man in whom he awakes becomes his own father's father. He who was David's son, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew 1, 1 has become David's father. No longer will I cry to our father, David, thy child. Acts 4, 25. I have found David. Psalm 89, 20. Acts 13, 22. He has cried to me, thou art my father. Psalm 89, 26. Now I know myself to be one of the Elohim, the God who became man, that man may become God. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. 1 Timothy 3.16 If the Bible were history, it would not be a mystery. Wait for the promise of the Father. Acts 1.4 That is for David, God's Son, who will reveal you as the Father. This promise, says Jesus, you heard from me, Luke twenty four forty four, and to its fulfillment at that moment in time when it pleases God to give you his Son as your offspring, which is Christ. Galatians three sixteen. A figure of speech is used for the promise of calling attention to, emphasizing and intensifying the reality of the literal sense. The truth is literal. The words used are figurative. 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Matthew 27:51. On the morning of April 8, 1960, four months after it was revealed to me that I am David's father, a bolt of lightning out of my skull split me in two from the top of my skull to the base of my spine. I was cleft as though I were a tree that had been struck by lightning. Then I felt and saw myself as a golden liquid light moving up my spine in a serpentine motion. As I entered my skull, it vibrated like an earthquake. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 3, 14. These mystical experiences will help to rescue the Bible from the externals of history persons, and events, and to restore it to its real significance in the life of man. Scripture must be fulfilled in us. God's promise will be fulfilled. You will have these experiences, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8 The Widening Circle Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth is God's plan. The promise is still maturing to its time, its appointed time, but how long, vast and severe the trials, ere you find David, your son, who will reveal you as God, the Father. We're long to tell, but it hastens to the end. It will not fail. So wait, for there will be no postponement. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah shall have a son. Genesis eighteen fourteen. The End